Good evening, Falter of Galair. My name is Nilo Doherty. I'm a professor in the School of Political Science and Sociology here, and I just want to welcome you all tonight and thank you for coming along. It's an especially timely moment for a former European Commissioner for External Affairs from the United Kingdom to be talking in Ireland about European identity. Just one hour, unless we've had dramatic news since, uh, <laughs> since I last looked online, uh, just one hour or so before the House of Common votes once again on the withdrawal agreement. We're also in a particularly fitting place for a talk celebrating the contribution of Morris Hayes to public life on both sides of the Irish border. And before we introduce Chris Patton, I will say a few words about that connection to NUI Galway. The theatre we're in is linked to Morris Hayes' teenage years. And it's a link that speaks to the depth of his connections to both jurisdictions in Ireland. While Morris Hayes was brought up in County Down in Northern Ireland, both of his parents were from what became the Republic of Ireland, from Kerry and from Waterford. And as a teenager, he spent summers in the Irish-speaking area of Waterford, the Ring, Gwiltoch Narina. And so when he spoke in Irish, it was as a fluent native speaker of Ring Gaeltacht Irish. In English, then, he spoke with a northern accent. In Irish, he spoke with a southern accent. No better, for, better metaphor, I think, for the strength and intimacy of his connections to both jurisdictions on the island. One of his close friends in County Waterford during those teenage years was a local teenager called Colmo Hocha. Many years later in the 1970s, Colmo Hocha was appointed president of the National University of Ireland, Galway, or UCG as it then was. And the theatre we're sitting in now, the Ohoka Theatre, is named after him. I first invited Morris to NUI Galway a little under 10 years ago to take part in a witness seminar on mediation during the Northern Troubles. When he was here, he mentioned that he had promised to Colmo Hocha many years before that he would come and give a talk in Galway, but had not managed to do so before Cullum's death. So we subsequently brought Morris back to give a public lecture here on the future of the public service as a kind of posthumous fulfillment of his promise to Colmohoka. It was in making the arrangements for that talk that we first began to discuss the possibilities of his archive being deposited in Galway. Professor Paul Arthur of Ulster University, a former colleague of mine when I worked there, had also been talking to Morris about the possibility of putting his papers in Galway and played a crucial role in that process. I'm delighted to see him here today and want to thank him for his part in that. It was important too that the papers of another old friend of Morris's, Kevin Boyle, former professor of human rights, were also here in Galway and that there are strong connections between his papers and other collections here, not least the papers of the intermediary Brendan Duddy, who was writing a diary of the secret talks between the IRA and the British government in 1975, at the same time as Morris Hayes was writing a diary about the public talks organised by the British government in the Constitutional Convention, and those diaries overlap and intersect and connect at all sorts of interesting points. And Morris met, well, he knew Brendan Doddy already, but he met him here as well during that witness seminar. Um, 
So Chris Patton has had a, a long and influential career and will, will be introduced by the President Kieran O'Hogarty, but I just want to highlight one aspect of it that has had perhaps the most direct influence on Ireland. As Chair of the Patent Commission on Policing in Northern Ireland, working alongside Morris Hayes and others, he made a major contribution to the peace process. And while policing remains a focus of contention, the Commission's recommendations for deep and meaningful changes were crucial in the bedding down of the peace settlement, making it possible for Unionists, Republicans and Nationalists to go into government together in Stormont. And for that, I think all of us in Ireland, North and South, are indebted to him. I'd like now to invite the University President, Professor Kieran O'Hogarthy, to introduce Chris Patton. Thank you. The Hayes family and uh, all friends of both the Hayes family and of the university are all very welcome. The Fáilte Vilgan Shah, Amhra Nona, Okai Dana Hawk, the Gluingi Shah, August Tommy Dana Hoss, the Fáilte Karoi, because Rivlar Patna Kahura. We've just opened and launched Morris Hayes' archives in the library, uh, and we've remembered Morris, and I think it's particularly fitting uh, today that, and this evening that we remember Morris's contribution. Uh, not only to the politics of uh, this island, but the politics of these islands as well. And on an evening like today, I think it's, as Neil said, particularly fitting. Uh, also to welcome Lord Patton, similarly fitting, but not only as a friend of Morris Hayes, a great friend of Morris Hayes, in politics and in life, uh, but also as somebody who has had significant influence on politics and on life uh, through his political and his personal career. Uh, not only in British politics uh, in Northern Ireland, in the tr transition of Hong Kong, in Europe as European Commissioner, uh, but, but also one gets the sense from talking to Lord Patton since he's joined us, uh, not only as a politician but as a person. Uh, th so the difference he's made, I think, in touching many people's lives uh, at a distance but also up, up close and personal, I think, uh, is fitting today that Morris Hayes is remembered in this way, not only by his friend but by somebody who has played a similar role uh, in life in that regard. And I think there are three things we can, we can take from this, uh, which, some of which I mentioned earlier in, in, in launching the archives. One, uh, in, when, we, when we were over in the archives, there's a very uh, uh, personal and uh, lovely note from Mo Molum to Morris. Uh, and uh, in it, as we know, she, she gave great momentum to the peace process. And in it, she has a, it's a formal letter typed up, and then she's a handwritten, as would be her want, a handwritten wrote on, note underneath. And which she says she misses the place and the people terribly. Uh, and that sense of people and place, I think, is particularly captured here. Uh, so the importance of people in politics, not only people to politics, in other words, that politics is about people and about the possibilities for people, but also the importance of people in politics, so the decisions that individuals make, the leadership which people provide uh, in their political context, I think is uh, particularly important in, the, in, in recognizing Morris Hayes' contribution as well. Uh, because I think people often represent something much bigger than themselves. So Morris represented not only public service, uh, which I think we always encourage as uh, a worthy and noble uh, calling, which very often isn't seen in career guidance in other places, that the sense, that sense of public service which he had, I think is something we should, we should laud. But secondly, his role in Northern Ireland itself, in, in uh, crossing the divide very often between uh, communities uh, which were uh, very much divided. And we mentioned, uh, and I mentioned one of the lectures he gave 
uh, that's in the archives is, is why are they not more like us? And that sense of empathy which he had for see seeking the other and understanding the other and walking the other shoes, I think is the difference that the person of Morris Hayes and also the person of Chris Patton has also made in, in politics. And I think the third piece, I think, and Chris Patton particularly, uh, as Morris Hayes did, and captures, encapsulates this, is that while we have a sense of place here, we also know our place. And that Chris Patton, as did Morris Hayes, had an impact not only in their own communities, but in communities beyond these shores. And very often we see this university as having, being in Galway, but not, not only being in Galway, but having an impact beyond and over the horizon, wondering what's beyond and over that horizon. And I think both Chris Patton and Morris Hayes had that, uh, that they saw that there was uh, something more than themselves, that there was a community more than their own community to serve. And Morris Hayes did that in his life, uh, in spanning the politics both of, of this island but also these islands. But secondly, Chris Patton also had that in spanning the politics not only of his island but of our islands together. And I think both, therefore, uh, we should, we're pleased to, to, to honour today Morris Hayes in, uh, in presenting his archives to us and we will cherish them here and look after them well here and they will give uh, good lessons to students and researchers here. But also welcoming Chris Patton, uh, both people who made a difference in politics, who showed that public service matters, uh, who showed that we should reach beyond ourselves to other communities to wonder uh, how we might make the world a better place, not only for ourselves in our own community, but for others too. But thirdly, for their uh, example in reaching not only in their own space, but beyond their own space to other locales and other areas and making that difference there too. So I'm particularly pleased, uh, as, I, as I say, to welcome Morris Hayes' archives, to welcome the Hayes family, uh, and to have his memory here with us today. Uh, and his memory will, will live with us here in the archives in the university at NUI Galway, but secondly to welcome Chris Patton, his great friend, uh, who will also talk about that European sense uh, that Morris had, that sense beyond his own locale. And I think particularly one other name I remember today in, the, in that context is John Hume. Uh, I was interviewed this morning on Radio Great about the archives, and one of the things I remembered was first hearing John Hume encapsulating or envisioning the Northern Ireland problem as, as not only a problem of these islands, but as a sense of identity in Europe and that that changed the debate around Northern Ireland very much, that this was not only, a, a, that people in Northern Ireland could see themselves not only as citizens of Ireland or Britain, but citizens of Europe as well. And that this, that's, that this I think, elevated the debate, as John Hume did, as Morris Hayes did, as Chris Patton will do now in the context of European identity. So, Morris Hayes and Shaw Ling and Big Sheet Lingagoni, Chris Patton Chris Patton. Thank you. President, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour, as I said uh, earlier, to be invited to give this lecture today in the presence of. Morris Hayes' wife, Joan, and his family, and of many of Morris's friends at the launching of this archive of his papers at a university that he loved. There have been many tributes to Morris and admiring obituaries since his death, and I don't seek to add to the justified praise of a loving father and grandfather, 
a wise and witty friend and a brave public figure. What I would like to do, encouraged by much of the evidence in the papers which are now in the archive, is to draw out some of the principal features which shaped Morris's life and career. Sent as a young and mildly bolshy member of parliament to take up my first job as a junior minister in Northern Ireland, I was aware of the fact that to many in the British political establishment, it was regarded as Westminster's version of a Siberian power station. <laughs> Prowinkia deserter, to borrow from Ezra Pound and Norman Dugdale. Norman first introduced me to Morris, who worked with him in the Department of Health. Together, they were not at all what I was expecting when I set foot in Belfast. Learned to the point of being polymaths, as widely read as anyone I knew, courteous without being deferential, they both wrote beautifully. Norman poetry, Morris prose. They returned a certain intellectual elegance, even donishness, in a world of Ulster bombs and Ulster fries, of pipes and drums, and of what seemed to a well-meaning and curious outsider at that moment, an incomprehensible atavism. Norman Dugdale introduced me to the poems of C.P. Cavafy, many of which he had translated. Morris knew them, of course, and once explained to me that Cavafy, for all his occasional homoerotic diversions, was quite simply one of the greatest poets of public affairs. It was odd to get this hint of the Levant, of the Eastern Mediterranean, of apricots and beakers full of the warm south, of a slightly louche Alexandrian world in the grounds of Stormont Castle. <laughs> Norman and Morris knew their own world. They served it, but they were never imprisoned by it. So what do you discover about Morris's world from these papers? There's a poem by Cavafy on Thermopylae, the battle of the hot gates, between a small force of Greeks and a vast Persian army. Honor to those, it begins, who in the life they lead define and guard a Thermopylae, never betraying what is right, consistent and just in all they do, but showing pity also and compassion. Generous when they're rich and when they are poor. Still generous in small ways. Still helping as much as they can. Always speaking the truth, yet without hating those who lie. I want to draw out three things from Morris's life which help to define, to use that word from the poem, and, and which he guarded. Together they etched deep for me what he contributed as a public figure and a private man. First, Morris believed in public service. Fittingly, it was the subject, as the president noted, of the Monsignor de Brun lectures he gave here in 2013, a lecture full of common sense 
and the puncturing of several overinflated managerial balloons. Secondly, Morris showed in his life the complexity of intellectual identity, of individual identity, and the absurdity of overemphasizing one or other aspect of who we are, each of us, isolating and, and weaponizing one particular element at the expense of a collective sense of social solidarity and civic humanism. Thirdly, there was his understanding that pride in your own country did not require hostility to others. Recognition of a shared European legacy did not detract from one's own patriotism. Forgetting this had almost destroyed that legacy of civilization in the 20th century. No one sensible would claim that public service was a British or Irish invention, let alone a monopoly. Though it's fair to say that reforms of the British civil service in the, 19, in the 1850s, despite the reputation of their principal progenitor on other issues, had a wide lasting and beneficial effect. But I imagine that there have always been men and women prepared to spend their lives working for their fellow citizens in a common cause which makes life for their community possible and acceptable. The particular contribution made by 19th century reforms was to separate the service from elective politics, to safeguard its independence from patronage and nepotism, to place on it the double responsibility of providing unconstrained advice and impartial implementation of decisions democratically determined. Some of this, I emphasize some, was true of the public service that Morris joined as a young former teacher in Downpatrick, as clerk to the council. My qualification is a pretty obvious one. Morris was a Catholic. In local government, his career was unlikely to flourish in unionist-controlled councils. Overall, there was a view that Catholics would not want to work for the state and that a unionist state would not give them a job or fair treatment in their career if they managed to secure a job at all. While recognizing that there was some truth in both these assumptions, Morris was himself compelled by three considerations. First, there was the remark allegedly made, allegedly, by that great Dubliner, Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Secondly, in a remarkable understatement, Morris once wrote that he had spent his career in public service because he had always relished a challenge. Well, thirdly, he certainly got one. Indeed, the challenges came thick and fast, and a major region, reason for working as a public servant was to hold together a society that could otherwise have come even more violently apart. It was splintered enough as it was. Describing the principal features of his career in his memoir about life as a Catholic public servant, Minority Verdict, 
Morris noted that he had met, that he had seen and worked through, and I quote, civil rights agitation, through internment, bloody Sunday, bloody Friday, bloody every day, <laughs> politically motivated stoppages, hunger strikes, political talks, talks about talks, and the failures of talks, through the terrorism and intimidation of whole communities, eviction and segregation, bombs, bullets, and mayhem, through the collapse of the manufacturing base, economic stagnation, and the inexorable rise of unemployment. Phew. <laughs> Morris was one of those who at every level, in often wretched and dangerous conditions, by and large sustained the services needed in any society. Moreover, in Northern Ireland, public servants had also to make things work, which are not usually required in civilized communities. They swept up what was known as the Belfast confetti and kept some semblance of order in disorderly times. They risked bombs to get to work and to make the payments to social security claimants. They patched up the bodies of the injured and maimed. They drove buses and ambulances through fierce mobs. They tried to keep some semblance of their law of fair law enforcement on the streets and in the courts and took physical risk in doing so. Morris once listed for me the 70, I think it was 17, the Catholic judges, lawyers, and police officers he had known who had been killed often by Republican terrorists. Public servants ran the advisory services for farmers and the planning and housing authorities. They tried to make sense of the contradictory and frequently sectarian opinions of local politicians who in my experience were far better at talking than listening. They tried to steer British political visitors to the province and ministers as well towards sensible and workable compromises, aware that they were often speaking into a void of ignorance, often willful, and that the wisdom they tried to impart in Belfast could be shot to pieces by some smart ass back in London who had just read a column in the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> they helped to push initiatives good, bad, and indifferent, that to the top of the hill, and then watched them roll back down to the bottom again. And they went home at night to cope themselves with some of the consequences being played out in their own community of the awful failure of civilized men and women to find a, sh a way of sharing this archipelago of the west coast of Europe. But they got up the next day and they went back to an office in Dundonald House, or a benefit office in Craigavon, or a hospital in Derry, to start all over again, rebuilding knees, or handing over unemployment payments. Morris was a central part of that, sometimes having to face his own fear of violence on the front line, something to which he owned up with characteristic honesty. Taking relief to a beleaguered Catholic community, he had to explain why, as it were, he was delivering butter, not guns. <laughs> like others, he never lost hope, that small but essential word. 
It was, what, it was Morris who once gave me a brief homily on why a Catholic or anyone should believe in original virtue and not just in original sin. All these women and men were loyal servants of the state who never gave up trying to deliver the best services they could in the best way. They replanned and developed cities while the bombs went off. They hugely improved the quality of public housing while trying to explain to a minister like me who was passing through why we needed an even higher wall between new accommodation for Catholics on one side of the street and Protestants on the other. They struggled to make financial sense of a health service free at the point of use and wide open at the point of demand. And all the time, they were trying to ensure that their service, they were inevitably reflecting some of the opinions and prejudices of a divided society should continue to reflect the best traditions of a meritocracy. I do not remember Morris ever referring to the religion or community of a colleague or of one of his own staff. Maybe he assumed that I would know the giveaway of a name or school. Or maybe he didn't think that it should matter to me. He was a loyal friend and admirer of many of those with whom he worked, sharing their frustration at the attitudes of some of those, those for whom they had to work, admiring their patience in explaining the same realities over and again to a constantly shifting cast of ministers, struggling against the odds to insert reason, evidence, and honest-to-goodness decency into the debate about political options. He admired men like Ken Bloomfield, Norman Dugdale, John Oliver, Ewart Bell, George Quigley, and Alan Elliott. They had labored in adjoining vineyards, and the fact that any vintages at all appeared was a tribute to their professionalism and their resilience. It's fair to say that Morris would not have been so charitable about some of the ministers, both from Stormont and Westminster, for whom he worked. He seemed to me to be fair to those, both unionist and republican, who managed sometimes to escape the bounds of identity and behave out of stereotype. On British itinerants, his judgments seemed very sound. Was there a good case to be made for Humphrey Atkins or Merlin Rees or Roy Mason? He was perceptive about Willie Whitelaw, describing his combination of compassion and gravitas, and shrewdly noting his effective negotiating ploy of never quite ending a sentence. <laughs> he also admired Jim Pryor, whose general political stance and attitude to Margaret Thatcher would have come rather close to his own. <laughs> Morris's only general criticism of Northern Ireland's public service came during the strike organized by the Ulster Workers' Council, which brought down the power-sharing executive in 1974. It was not only the police and the army who had truckled to the unionist strikers, but in time, other parts of the public service and even the BBC. This helped destroy a real opportunity to restore peace and progress 
more than 20 years before the Good Friday Agreement. As ever, even I think today, large parts of political unionism were quite happy to share power so long as there was none. <laughs> and each turn of the wheel left them in a worse position. Today, they often seem intent on giving Sinn Féin's political ambitions a helping hand. So from local government to community relations, to the health service, to the post of official ombudsman, to policing and the biggest political issues of the day, Maurice Hayes was at the heart of Northern Ireland's often exemplary public service, helping to hold together a community atomized by the crudest sort of identity politics. This was an issue on which Morris's whole life provided an exemplary lesson. And it was partly my experience of working with him that gave me an interest in this increasingly baleful issue. For a significant part of my adult life, politics seemed to be determined above all by ideology. At home, what occasioned debate and divided opinions was pretty clear. Was I to believe in a larger or smaller role for the state? How should the balance be struck in economic and civic life between the state and the individual? Should I lean a little more in one direction than the other, but still reckon that there was no overarching schema which explained everything? While socialist plans might not contain the secret of eternal happiness, neither did the opposite market fundamentalism. I'm not sure that Morris's position was far from this, and I suspect that we both clung on to a combination of moderate Keynesianism with a dash of fiscal rectitude about trying to balance the budget. So right versus left was a fight over similar ground in most Western democracies. Abroad, things seemed, if anything, even more plain. It was East versus West, communism against the free world, Russia and its empire against the United States and its allies. NATO was established with the goal, in the words of its first Secretary General, of keeping Russia out of Europe, America in Europe, and Germany down. A wall, literal, and figurative divided Europe. We didn't fight on our own continent. The threat of nuclear Armageddon kept the peace. Meanwhile, proxy wars killed Asians and Africans. Then it all ended. As the comedian Tommy Cooper used to say, just like that. <laughs> the wall came down. The lion cohabited with the lamb. We enjoyed, apparently, the triumph forever and a day of welfare democracy, of a combination of economic and political freedom. At home, Mr. Blair's Labour Party gave up its commitment to nationalize hither and yon, just as Monsieur Mitterrand had done in France. Lord Mandelson opined that he was very relaxed about people becoming filthy rich, and in due course, he set out on his own journey to that goal. 
suddenly it all seemed to go wrong. Ideologically, deregulated economies and maintenance levels of borrowing, especially in the United States, brought the whole hubristic monument to licensed greed and exuberant excess crashing down. As President Nixon's favorite economist Herb Stein used to say, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. <laughs> the stop was made more bearable to some of the culprits when governments in several, most countries, moved, moved in fast to socialize the losses in institutions where the previous large gains had, of course, been privatized. The economic downturn, the crash, and the growing sense of unfairness came along at the same time as the competitive impact of globalization hit industrial communities across the developed world. Globally, the crumbling certainties of a world order precariously balanced on American leadership of post-war international institutions was accompanied by the growing deracination of established political parties in Europe and America. A less stable world emerged in which we were unhappily reintroduced to the often savage irrationality of what the French Lebanese Christian Arab writer Armin Malouf calls the panthers of identity politics. Our most horrendous reintroduction to them came of course in New York in September 2001. When I first began to think about identity politics and the, and the way in which it plays out, I began to realize how much of my life had been stealth spent dealing with it in one way or another. It had never gone away. From the Balkans to the alleged clash of civilizations in Asia. And of course, for me, the story had begun in one way in Northern Ireland. What do I mean by identity politics? Above all, I mean defining yourself by one aspect, or perhaps a small group of aspects of your heritage, race, background, language, religion, or nationality, so that other considerations are submerged, trumped, you might say. <laughs> Reason and evidence are usually victims. So too the ties of shared interest that bind a community. History has to be pressed into service to tell you what you want to have been true. I recall Morris telling me about the formidable Aunt Agatha type unionist lady who wanted a history of Northern Ireland written, quote, from a unionist point of view, of course, unquote. History, as you know, is such an insurrectionary subject. Trump summons supporters, tr Trump supporters summon the devils of blood and soil. Conservative members of parliament in Britain recall the glory days when we hit the sun hun for six. Though I'm not sure that would have been quite the spirit of my father-in-law who was killed in Normandy in 1944. And of course, these days, we can't talk about fighting them on the beaches since we may need the beaches to park the Dover-bound lorries. <laughs> but one way in which you seek to identify yourself in these wretched political games 
is by who you were not. You define yourself against others. They are black, you are white. Their first language is not your own. They are Hindu or Muslim or Buddhists. They're Catholic or Protestant. And that brings me rather obviously to Morris, or rather to Morris and to me. Let me start with me. I guess I know me rather better. What is my identity? As Piglet says in Winnie the Pooh, the things that make me different are the things that make me. I'm a suburban scholarship boy, a fortunate example of social mobility, middle class in my background, well, just about middle class, a moderate conservative, a strong believer in noblesse oblige, a committed supporter of Britain's role in the European Union, and an advocate of the continuing importance of honor in foreign policy. Oh, and I'm also a cradle Catholic of a rather argumentative sort. I could say with John McGahan, the church was my first book. Why was I born a Catholic? Because my great-grandfather, Patrick, born in, 1819, in 1829 in Roscommon, chose not to starve to death in Boyle during the potato famine, but to flee from his home and find refuge in the northwest of England. So in that roundabout distant way, I'm a consequence like so many British and American passport holders of that particularly dreadful episode in Britain's colonial history in Ireland. Morris was a more clear-cut example of the tortured relationship between Britain and Ireland, a history which is, understandably, far more likely to be acknowledged here than on the other side of the Irish Sea. I'm sorry that in England sometimes we still manage to combine being both ignorant and patronizing. <laughs> I've always myself seen some wisdom in the advice of Louis McNeese's Episcopal father to remember the past, the better to forget it. Morris, as I've already described, spent his public life helping to pick up the pieces shattered by politics and the extremes of identity. He did so as a highly educated, civilized, and proud Irishman who happened to live in County Down. Was this hero of Gaelic sport a pretend Englishman serving a foreign power? Was this Gaelic scholar and fluent Irish Gaelic speaker lacking some essential ration of Irish genes? I remember at a meeting of the National Forum on Europe, chaired by Senator Hayes, at which he was greeted by the two Sinn Féin members with a word or two, no more than two, of Irish, in which he responded with several detailed conversational points, which left them literally speechless and uncomprehending. Did Morris's Catholicism make him suspicious of those from other Christian denominations? Not at all. I think he would have found a lot more sustenance from an inclusive, outward-facing Catholicism than from a free Vatican, than from a pre-Vatican II council approach. He would always sound more like St. Matthew's Gospel than the exponents of a confessional clericalism. 
He had friends in other churches, like the Methodists, on whom he was particularly keen. He even had more than a single good word for Dr. Paisley, though he would have recognized when he heard the criticism by today's leader of the dismal party that Paisley founded that Brussels and Dublin were intransigent as proof positive that political irony was not yet dead. <laughs> he clearly did not feel that intellectual distinction had played a large part in the man management of the Catholic Church in Ireland and reckoned that it would have been easier to see a continuation between the, a continuum between the days of the early church in Galilee and the problems we all face today had it not been for the interruption of some aspects of the Counter-Reformation. All of which is to say that Morris's identity was Irish and Catholic, but not at the expense of charity, generosity, and a decent regard for the values of solidarity, regardless of whether or not you believed in transubstantiation or Luther's 95 Theses. His personality and intellectual range made Morris an invaluable member of the commission which reorganized policing in Northern Ireland after the Good Friday Agreement, which the pres president referred to earlier. Several ma members made substantial contributions to that work, not least Cathy O'Toole, who's just chaired a similar committee overhauling policing in the Republic, and Sir John Smith, a retired British police officer. But central to our work was the relationship between Morris and the barrister Peter Smith, a former member of the governing body of the Ulster Unionist Party, a good, brave, and truly honorable man. More than any of us, Morris and Peter comprehended the essentials of the agreement on political identity, which underpinned the Good Friday Agreement. The broadly unionist community accepted that nationalists and republicans in Northern Ireland should not be bound to demonstrate loyalty to the institutions of a unionist state, flags, emblems, names, and so on. In return, nationalists would accept that the status of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom would only be settled through the ballot box. Votes are what should count, not violence. Applied to policing, this would and did remove the police service from the center of often violent political controversy, with police officers seen by one side as the guarantors of unionist hegemony and by the other as the enforcers of unionist rule. Police officers would become what they should always be, servants of the whole community, of the rule of law which held the community together and of the individual human rights protected by that same rule of law. We all recognized on our commission that if this approach to identity was regarded by politicians as acceptable for the governing institutions of the state, like the Northern Ireland Assembly, it was both bizarre and hypocritical to place policing outside its ambit. A cap badge was not worth a life. Changing a name did not dishonor bravery and decency. The Good Friday Agreement has survived more or less with a few scratches and dents in the bodywork. I'm delighted that the police service of Northern Ireland has proved such a success 
in many ways, a model for policing in divided community, communities. Much of that success belongs to the courage and integrity of Morris and Peter Smith. The courage in both cases was not only intellectual. The view of identity with all its complexity in his own history inevitably helped determine Morris's notion of whether a border or passport should limit or be the main determinant of the overriding notion of community. Here he was, a Catholic boy from County Down, a senior public servant in the bitterly divided north of the island of Ireland, a nominated senator in Dublin, an Irish Gaelic speaker, a beautiful writer of English, steeped in Irish literature and history, steeped in but not warped or consumed by them, a man who did not believe that Ireland was bound by a bad blood border or by giant cliffs or cold seas. It was a part of a wider world. How could it not be, given its geography, its itinerant demography, its culture as a part of the Atlantic world and of the European too? Yeats, Joyce, Beckett, his friend Seamus Heaney were all Irish, yes, but great figures in European and world culture too. Morris knew that the understanding of the Europeanness of Ireland on both sides of that bad blood order, border had helped to heal wounds in the North. No one except the ignorant or delusional ideologues can be in any doubt about the contribution made by the membership of the Republican Britain and the European Union to the peace process in the North. It was not least a reminder of a matter of wider application, namely that most of the serious issues that face individual nation states can only be dealt with through cooperation with other nations. Nations enhance, they do not diminish their, their sovereignty to tackle shared challenges and, ride to shared, and rise to shared opportunities by working together. Sovereignty can be such a slippery concept, which I am afraid has blinded many in my own country to the realities of the United Kingdom's position in the world. So Morris was always able to draw a distinction between nationalism and patriotism. He was proud of Ireland, but did not think that he needed to demonstrate that pride by deriding other nations. Patriotism does not require you to glamorize your own national institutions, nor to reinvent your own history. How sad it has been in recent months to see in England the depths of ignorance and of patronizing disdain for our closest neighbor in whose, in whose history Britain has often played an ignoble role. I hope that in time we'll be forgiven. Chairing the National Forum on Europe in the Republic, Morris drew on his knowledge of the history of Europe as well as its culture and contemporary politics. The 20th century in Europe was an awful casualty of what Winston Churchill in his famous Zurich speech in 1946 called frightful nationalistic quarrels. Preparing a homily in Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford to mark the centenary of the end of the First World War, 
I worked out that I was the first chancellor of the university in 80 years not to have fought in a European war. My predecessor, Harold Macmillan, was wounded five times in the First World War, most seriously in the Battle of the Somme, where so many members of the 16th and 30th Irish divisions were among the casualties. Thinking of their sacrifices and those of many others, I recall a frequent theme in Harold Macmillan's speeches at Oxford when I was an undergraduate. He used to note that on many of the war memorials in Oxford and Cambridge, the names of the dead are listed alphabetically with no distinction between British, Irish, American, Commonwealth, German, French, Italian. It's true of the memorial in Pembroke College, Cambridge, which recalls my father-in-law's death. Macmillan used to go on to note that there was a deep obscenity about bringing young men and later young women together to learn and read the great works of European civilization and then to send them back to their own countries to learn to kill one another. I'm sure it was Morris who pointed me to W.H. Auden's great poem on Yeats, and in particular to this stanza. In the nightmares of the dark, all the dogs of Europe bark, and the living nations wait, each sequestered in its hate. Populism and nativism can easily lead, and often do lead, to the same results. Actions do have consequences a rather matter-of-fact observation which seems to have been obliterated England today by a mass outbreak of cognitive dissonance. The months and years will tick past, and I guess we'll all survive in reasonable order, albeit as Cavafy, in a way, notes at the end of that poem that I referred to in the beginning of my remarks on Thermopylae. It's not a racing certainty. Indeed, after praising the Greek guardians of that path, Cavafy ends with this reflection. And even more honor is due to them when they foresee, as many do foresee, that in the end, Ephialtes will make his appearance, that the Medes will break through after all. Ephialtes, you will recall, was the traitor who showed the Persian army a path around the great, great Greek position at the pass of Thermopylae. So Morris was not a blithe and breezy fantasist. He knew that public service, that politics, that knowing yourself, knowing what you stand for, was not necessarily a guaranteed road to that tired old topographical cliche, sunlit uplands. Life was a matter of negotiating your way as honest, honorably and honestly as possible around one predicament after another. This should not be a cause of depression or anxiety, but a recognition of the only way you can lead a good and useful life. And doing exactly that, you can of course make things better. I seem to recall that Morris was not much of a fan of Tennyson. Indeed, he once said to me that that poem, much used at memorial services, Crossing the Bar, contained a line best nailed to the counter in public houses. May there be no moaning at the bar. 
That said, I don't think that he would mind me quoting at the end of these remarks Tennyson's poem on Ulysses, encouraging his battered crew to continue their adventure. Made weak as they were by time and fate, but strong in will. He urged them on to strive to seek, to find, and not to yield. Above all, Ulysses tells his men, "'Tis not too late to seek a newer world." Nor is it. As Morris showed, and as this archive will remind scholars, a newer world is something for which it's worth striving, however realistic we need to be about the storms and the high seas that must be navigated in trying to find it. We can, all of us, carry a ration of hope with us. There's nothing, as Morris showed, in the culture, religious beliefs, or history of an Irish Catholic to stop him or her being a cheerful optimist who loves life and all those also who share that love. Thank you. very much um, to Chris Patton and we have a, a little time now for questions and so if you have a question just put your hand in the air and I'll take a couple of questions together if, if we have a few. There. Um, so yes go ahead. Has the uh, karaoke machine coming? Yeah. <laughs> I won't break into song. Uh, thank you very much. That was wonderful. I, I wondered if you could say something a little bit about your own experience in Northern Ireland, uh, entering there, and how you, how you negotiated having some family history in Ireland, uh, a background in Ireland. Did that come into play? Was it something that you drew on in some fashion? Did it establish trust or distrust? I didn't really draw on my past, and indeed, not least when I was chairing the Policing Commission, it would have horrified, I guess, some of the unionist community to know that my stepfather's father was an inspector in the Royal Irish Constabulary um, until Michael Collins was killed. Um, I had two senses, and it's true that I became more aware as time went on of my Irish roots. But the first was the astonishment at the extent to which my wife and I were regarded as being extraordinary. <coughs> I'm a Catholic. My wife is a member of the Church of England. And our children are sort of a mixture. And I remember the very first press conference I had when um, a young woman asked me what it was like to be part of a mixed marriage. <laughs> and it, I, I guess it gave me a certain sympathy with um, the Windrush generation. Um, I remember sitting in the uh, governor's 
seats with my wife in the parish church at Hillsborough. And I think there was a little gulping. Um, but I had already been to the church at Riley's Trench, partly because my policemen, who were, became great friends, reckoned it was the place with the fastest mass in Northern Ireland. <laughs> One of them said, 24 minutes from takeoff to touchdown. <laughs> um, so I was, I was puzzled by, by um, that emphasis. I was also, I wonder if I think I can tell this story. I was also puzzled by a number of the manifestations of uh, sectarianism. I, I was saying to somebody earlier that, that going to my, on my first hospital visit, very sort of Prince Philippish, hands behind my back, um, uh, and talking to the charge nurse in A&E, little, very nice little woman, smelling strongly of Lux toilet soap. And I said rather grandly, have you had any casualties in there as a result of the troubles recently? And she said, oh, yes, we had a couple of Catholic kneecappings in two nights ago. And I said, and I could hear my private secretary and my policeman behind me sucking through their teeth. I said, come on, you can't possibly tell me there's a difference between a Catholic and a Protestant kneecapping. And she said, well, of course we can. The Catholics use a shotgun and the Protestants use a black and decker drill. <laughs> and I felt my stomach fall out, and it was true. It, it, it is what used to happen, I hope it doesn't still. So there are aspects of, you drive around this beautiful country, you're dealing with, you're talking to wonderfully scholarly, wise, sensible um, uh, civil servants. You're eating too much protein every evening, um, too much fried food, but you're having a wonderful time, and then suddenly you're hit by these manifestations of, of, of divisiveness. And um, Morris used to argue, and I think he was right, that it was less about, that it wasn't much about religion at all. It was about power. It was about who was on top, who was thought to be the top dog. And that gradually kept up, crept up on me. The second thing, which I became quite animated about, people used to say how beautiful. They still do, and it's right, Northern Ireland was. And they used to sometimes say it in a way which implied that this somehow justified the fact that people were murdering one another. And I thought that was complete tommy rot. Nothing justified that. The other thing which was born on, in on me was how easy it was for me to have those sort of attitudes. That nobody outside Northern Ireland recognized the intimacy of violence there. I've told this story before, though probably not to many of you have heard it. The very last um, meeting of our public meeting of our policing commission was in that I noticed somebody had signed in from there uh, to the opening of the archive in that little fishing village where the um, 17 or so paratroopers were blown up. One point. We were, we were at a, a meeting just, just next to there in a cinema which was like the one in that wonderful Italian film Cinema Paradiso. And we were up on, we were up on the stage. 
And uh, I think three of us, I think I was there with Morris and Kathy. And, the, and the, the community was divided pretty well down the middle. Um, I think the Catholics were, the fishermen and the Protestants were the, were the farmers or the other way. Well, anyway, there was a complete division. And the meeting was quite heated but manageable. And at the end of those evenings, um, the thought of alcohol, we always used to be fairly high in my... Uh, on my agenda and I thought we could wind up the meeting and I was thinking about going back to the flat that I was in in uh, Hillsborough to have a large um, Irish whiskey so I'm closing up the meeting and a little lady at the back uh, wearing I can still remember she had a sort of plaid coat and matching hat and she got up and said um, Mr. Patton she said uh, just before you go, I've got another question. So I sat down. She said, it's not really a question, it's, a, it's just a remark I want to make to you. Did you come here and make those pretty speeches about reconciliation and healing and hope? She said, um, it's more difficult for us here. She said, that man there, and she leant forward and touched the shoulder of the man in front of her, killed my son. And it was true. And I don't think anybody the other side of the Irish Sea understands that you can be in a queue in Morrison's or wherever and see somebody who you know shot your uncle or second cousin. Another evening, we had two public meetings. We had one in Portadown, then we had one in Craigavon. And the very, very difficult meeting, in, really difficult in Portadown, which was chaired and kept in order. There was Slab Murphy had come down from, from I was going to say the trees, but from the mountains. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. I didn't say that. Um, and it was a really, really tif- tough meeting. This very, very good woman called Rosemary Nelson um, kept it in order. Then we went on to Craig Avon, and we had a meeting at which four police widows in a row got up and told the story about their husband's death. The last one, a case where uh, everybody thought they knew who'd, who'd shot the, her husband, but the alleged um, uh, murderer had been got off by his solicitor, Rosemary Nelson. Two weeks later, Rosemary Nelson was blown up, backing out of her garage. And you'll forgive me for anecdotalizing, for sounding a bit uh, like um, President Clinton, but those sort of anecdotes make a huge impact um, on you. Now, you can't totally conceptualize from them, but I don't think anybody understands outside the intimacy of that um, violence. It helped me quite a bit when I was in uh, working in the Balkans in from 99 to 2004. It made me sort of understand it more and also um, made me understand why some of the job in Northern Ireland had become so difficult. In, in, in the Balkans, nobody talked about those who'd been ethnically cleansed from their area being moved back um, into it afterwards. 
and just deal with that. So it was a, there was a lot of it that I, sorry, I'm going on too long, but there was a lot of it that um, I learned a great deal from. Um, but above all, despite this um, intimate violence, there were people who forgave. Um, that's, uh, I think it's in St. Matthew's Gospel that he talks about forgiveness not seven times seven, but 70 times seven. And that's what a lot of people have had to do in Northern Ireland. Sorry, I'm sounding like a bishop. Sure. I, I see two more questions. Is there any, and a, a third, and I think that's probably all we're, we're going to have time for. So I'll ask each of you to, to, to ask your question and, and then ask Chris Patton, Patton to answer it together. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Uh, firstly, thank you for a beautifully worded speech, Mr. Patton, Lord Patton. Um, can I just say I'm not a fan of your political party, um, but I do respect that there were undisputably some brilliant minds in the successive cabinets of the 80s and 90s. Can you explain why there is such a dearth of intellect in the current Conservative cabinet? It's all fled to the Labour Party. <laughs> I will. I'll come back to that in a moment. It's a, it's a, it's a very good question. Yeah, just you, you were talking about the intimacy of, of the violence and um, the, um, the, the attitude, shall we say, of President of, of uh, Mr. Paisley's party in the North at the moment and your experience of the North, but, and also the politics uh, of identity. But do you think in Northern Ireland there has grown up uh, an identity of a certain uniqueness in Northern Ireland that people don't see themselves as British or as maybe exclusively Irish, but that there is a, a Northern Irish identity that has come up through a number of, of generations and how that can be factored into the whole process. Okay. And just one final question. Um, for the ordinary man in the street, um, Morris Hayes would be remembered for his major role in the production of the Down team the early 60s. They won the All-Ireland in 1960 and 1961 and uh, that, uh, they were the first team then to bring the Sam Maguire across the border. Um, they, they also had many supporters, uh, admirers all around the country and who would travel to see their games or to see the down players playing uh, in the Ulster team. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm sure I understand that though I don't understand the game. Um, but I have to say that I do understand rugby, and I'm very strongly supporting Ireland on the weekend. Uh, um, but, I mean, g games can be, can be inclusive and exclusive. Um, I told a joke, an, a different joke, about the Duke of Norfolk, who I was referring to earlier, um, last week in... in New York, and nobody got it, because a definition of a foreigner, as you know, is, is someone who doesn't understand the laws of cricket. And I told what I thought was a very funny joke about the Duke of Norfolk, who used to um, uh, have a match at the beginning of every cricket tour by an Australian or other side. He used to have a match 
at his in, on his um, in his gardens at uh, Arundel Castle, and he used to play in it against the touring side, and used to um, get his butler to umpire. <laughs> and one year when the um, Australians were um, were playing the Duke was palpably out first ball, hit him on the leg right in front of the wicket. Dilemma for the butler. <laughs> and eventually, after thought, the butler raised his finger and said, his grace is not in. <laughs> that, that was not widely understood in New York, I have to say. Um, uh, no, I know, I know what a fantastic um, uh, all-rounder in every cultural sense, and, and uh, sport is a part of culture. Indeed, in, in uh, El Pais, bullfighting is put on the culture page. Um, the question you asked about identity in Northern Ireland, back in Caracas. Um, <laughs> I, I, identity in, there, there was a butler when I used to stay in, 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 um, uh, in the castle. Um, at, um, in Northern Ireland, there was a butler, he was a very strong DUP member, and you'd have people for dinner. And once it got past quarter to 10, he'd come in and start turning the lights on. <laughs> True story. Um, I, I, one reason why it's a particularly interesting question is because in Hong Kong, there's a real sense of citizenship among young Chinese, Chinese Hong Kongers. They feel Chinese, but they also identify with a set of values and attitudes which we too seldom think about, about the relationship between economic freedom and political freedom. And I'm always surprised that um, that's, uh, the importance of uh, the rule of law, of public service, of civic humanism hasn't been a larger part of that sense of identity in uh, Northern Ireland. Um, Lambic drums, um, fries, that's all important, but um, you don't, for a lot of British people, demonstrate how British you are by painting the curbstones. And it's a real puzzle for a lot of people being told that one of the communities is demonstrating its Britishness by behaving in that way, or by insisting on marching provocatively through areas where they're hoping people will throw stones at them. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's, it's a real problem, I think, um, of comprehension for outsiders. And I think that um, we shouldn't actually encourage some of the worst aspects of extremism in Northern Ireland political or cultural affairs. Just, I, I'm coming, I'm coming back, I'm moving, I'm moving relentlessly towards, <laughs> towards um, a discussion of Mr. Corbyn's, I mean, um, of uh, Theresa May's um, colleagues. I think it's a particular tragedy that at this um, woeful junction in the affairs of my own country, and this is the worst political crisis um, that I've known in my lifetime. It's worse than Suez, really, because it goes on um, and on. 
Um, I think it's particularly awful that, as particular, that at this moment, um, the leadership of both main parties is so weak. To be generous. In the Conservative Party, which I'm um, better placed to talk about, we're seeing the working out, though not yet, of a crisis in conservatism, similar to the 19th century Corn Laws or the beginning of the 20th century, um, in which there's a clash between English nationalism, ideological, free marketeering without really knowing much about markets, rather ignorant, uh, a bit phobic when it comes to foreigners, a working out of that against the traditional non-ideological, quite pragmatic um, conservatism in which you try to cope as best you can. Um, and I don't know where that's going to stop. The idea that it stops whether or not Mrs. May gets her deal through today is for the birds. This is going to run um, uh, away with the Conservative Party unless there are enough people, younger ones in the Conservative Party, who want to stand up to it. As the Conservative Party has had fewer and fewer members, so it's become more extreme, just like the Republican Party with the Tea, with the tea Party. Um, I said to my wife recently that I thought the numbers in the Conservative Party had fallen so much so far that they could all fit into Wembley Stadium. And she said rather wisely, yes, but they couldn't manage the steps because they're... <laughs> because the average age of the Conservative Party is... is now, there are, there, are some, there are some good younger people. There's a wonderful... Um, there's a wonderful young... The younger Johnson is very good. There's his, his successor as Higher Education Minister, Sam Jima, who comes from a Ghanaian background. There's a good young man, I'm sorry he's been so vocal in, in supporting this awful deal, Rory Stewart, who's an intelligent man and a good prisons minister. There's a guy called Tom Tugendhat, who's the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, so they exist. There's an ex-soldier who's been very brave in, in saying that it's impossible for us to even consider departing with, um, without a deal. But then there are... When people talked about a managed no deal, Why was the first person who came to mind Mr. Grayling? <laughs> and the way we'd managed to deal with a change in railway timetables, or a drone at Gatwick. Um, we didn't even manage to organize a lorry jam in Kent. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's sad. I suppose it goes in cycles. I, I, I think that I was particularly lucky in my generation um, and I look back, maybe it's what old men do, look back at the generation of politicians in both the main parties when I was first in politics. I mean, there was a deeply um, unsuccessful cabinet, Labour cabinet, which was made up of giants. Healy, 
um, uh, Jenkins, um, uh, Crossland, Crossman, Barbara Castle. I could go on, all, all in their way, giants, and I can't think of anybody on the left or on the right in British politics who's, who's of that calibre. So we're not in a very good position at the moment. And as I was saying earlier today, it's something of a humiliation to look back at. Um, I picked this up in a review written of the best book on Brexit by an, by, he's, by, he's an Irish writer, not Vincent O'Toole, but um, Kevin O'Rourke, called A Short History of Brexit. He's a, he's a trade, trade economist um, at Oxford, I'm pleased to say. Um, and in a review in the FT of this book, somebody quotes Yehudi Menuhin, who said when Britain joined the European Union um, in 1973, as you did, um, Yehudi Menuhin said, well, it's wonderful because now the British, who are so, so terribly good at government and, and, and uh, welfare democracy and parliamentarianism, they can now give lessons to the rest of Europe. <laughs> So you wouldn't try that one on these days, would you? So it's, it's, it's sad. But I'm afraid that while it's the main responsibility for where we are now is this long-burning crisis in the Conservative Party and the way it's been handled, not least by Mr. Cameron, um, while that's the main reason, we would not be in the hole we're in if the Labour Party was better led. Um, and uh, I don't think that Mr. Corbyn is a... He's a wicked man. I think it's bizarre to think that um, Venezuela is the economic model we should be pursuing all of this. <laughs> and I think, he is, I think he is surrounded by a few old-fashioned Stalinists. Um, so it's not a very happy state of affairs. But in the Labour Party as well, there are, there are good people. Yvette Cooper, Hillary Benn. Hillary Benn's terrific. Um, and I hope that um, those people in the Labour Party and one or two in the Conservative Party will be able to stitch together some sort of um, consensus, if that is, Mrs. May has lost this evening, though it's, I think, taking place, even as I rabbit on. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. And Finally, this evening, Evelyn Choiga, Vice President of the Students' Union, will just propose a vote of thanks. Evelyn. Hey, um, on behalf of the students, Lord Patton and the Hayes family, I would really like to thank you so much for donating this to our library. I know myself, I was very excited to find out that this event was happening. Didn't know that I was going to be speaking at it, but um, yeah, really, honestly, on behalf of all of us here, I think there. It is amazing to be able to have this archive. Um, sorry now, I'm a little bit nervous, um, but he, he, like, he made an effort to change things for the better, binding communities together and to build a more har harmonious society. And I think now at the minute in the light of Brexit and everything that's going on, it really is important for us to be able to have these, to be able to go back and reflect and to see what worked and to see will we be able to apply it again in the future. So on behalf of myself being the nerd that I am and all of the other students here, thank you so much for this and I hope you enjoy the rest of the evening. Okay, and thank you very much for coming along. Good night.